Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Steve West on legal challenges to religious liberty and recent victories. So anyway, that was a very good ruling in terms of, you know, legally. It doesn't stop persecution necessarily. It doesn't stop the things that happened, but it does give them the legal right to exist on campus. And it's a model of, of, of some students who basically stood up and took the heat for this. Steve West, next. World reporter and former federal prosecutor Steve West is with us to discuss his piece, Year in Review, Making Room for the Religious. Steve will give us a recap of some major First Amendment and religious liberty cases in 2023, and he'll also give us something of a feel for some of what might be ahead this year. Steve, we're going to discuss some of these important First Amendment religious liberty cases today, but you say they are only the tip of an underlying human drama. What do you mean? You know, all of these cases uh, are costly in one sense for many of the, the people involved. I mean, we watch them from the outside. Uh, lawyers litigate cases all the time, but they involve real people who are uh, in difficult circumstances. And like you say, we'll talk about a few of those different circumstances. But one of the things that comes through all these cases is these are people that are willing to uh, basically take the heat, you know, stand up. Uh, for what's right uh, at, at personal cost to themselves. And, you know, just, just to mention one, I, I think of uh, Jack Phillips, uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop baker uh, in Colorado, who is still litigating a case, uh, one of the cases that involves him um, e- even over 10 years later from the time all of this started with him. So most people are familiar with him, and, but he's continued just to stand firm uh, and I'm sure that it's been a many times difficult 10 years, 10 plus years for him. So that's just one case. But yeah, there's a great uh, human cost that goes there. Uh, and I think uh, what I was pointing to was that, you know, we can in that that human drama, what we can um, we can litigate these cases. We can we can do our best or attorneys can do their best to uh, prevail on behalf of their clients. Um, to bolster religious liberty, but underneath that, uh, really, there has to be heart change, you know, in our in the people in this society. You know that people have to believe that that faith is important, that religion is important. Uh, you know, for Christians, we don't believe just that religion is important. We we really believe that we have to have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So uh, that's that's the drama that's underneath that. Uh, and you know, of course, God becoming man. I was thinking about that at Christmas time. The incarnation itself, that is a great drama, uh, a great thing that has happened uh, that has you know, really changed everything uh, because of that. So, so really, underneath all this, there's, there's this human cost. There's also this, um, this human drama that's really going on in the human heart. You know, and the legal stuff is really the, the outside of that. Uh, important, but outside. So really, that as a society, that influences really in some ways how these cases may be decided depending upon how as a society we still hold these kind of protections religious liberty and free speech parental rights protections highly if those begin to decline if we as a society begin to believe that these are not really that important that'll then influence obviously how the cases are decided that's exactly right bill you know i pointed out in that uh, article i just i quoted uh, one of our founding fathers james madison who wrote you know, that our Constitution requires equal, 
quote, sufficient virtue among men for self-government. And then he says, otherwise, nothing less than the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. He's pointing, pointing out that really, uh, unless we really have some measure of virtue in our society, and I would say, unless we actually believe that religion is important, you know, that this, the spiritual beliefs are important, uh, that uh, people are not going to support uh, the accommodation of religion in society. It's not going to be viewed as that important. Ultimately, that will uh, influence the people that are uh, appointed as judges or elected as judges. Those judges won't have a high view of the First Amendment, and therefore, you know, it won't be deemed that important. We see it nowadays a lot of times with um, these um, expanded, what's called expanded public accommodation laws, laws that were really important in making sure that people got served in restaurants uh, or housed in a hotel, even, you know, in spite of in spite of their race. In other words, they weren't, there wasn't discrimination on behalf of race, but now those statutes have been expanded to include you know, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity and almost uh, viewed as trumping any kind of um, First Amendment religious liberty right. So we don't, I mean, if we don't believe religion is important, then it's going to be easy to allow that to trump that right. So, so that's why, you know, really to have uh, First Amendment protections, we really need to be a religious people. And, and we're an increasingly secularized country, and particularly among the youth. And so you, you find that um, there's not as much support for religious liberty. So that's the danger, you know. Well, Steve, you address a number of areas uh, in your piece, uh, the year in review, making room for the religious uh, number of uh, cases within each of these areas that you believe were very significant in the past year. For example, uh, first of all, accommodating employees' religious beliefs. And why has, I, I, I guess just to kind of start this aspect of the discussion, why has the workplace become such a flashpoint for these issues? I think that a lot of times um, now in the workplace, there's a lot of other things going on other than just getting the work done. There's sort of a, um, there's a, there's an agenda there. Uh, part of that is the influence of LBGTQ philosophy, uh, pushing to uh, allow a more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable workplace, the DEI emphasis. Um, and then there's also um, a lot of this, um, uh, another idea is this anti-racist training. You know, anti-racist sounds like a good thing, but what it really refers to is something that came out of critical race theory. And it's it really a divisive kind of concept because it divides people into the oppressor and the oppressed. And it sets people at odds in the workplace. And a lot of this is filtered into the workplace. And so you see a lot of that happening. And uh, so people that are that are Christians uh, and Jews and some Muslims uh, in the workplace want to be able to opt out of that kind of training in the workplace. So that's been a, a bone of contention. Also, you know, just uh, the accommodation of people's particular um, uh, religious beliefs, for example, about uh, the vaccine. You know, some employers had a mandatory vaccine policy. Uh, but they're also required to accommodate religious uh, beliefs of employees. And some people had a religious objection to taking the vaccine. So that too came up. Also, there's the matter of dress. And so you have, you have some, even some Christians or some Muslims believe they need to have a beard. Uh, you know, it's, it's just 
there, there are a variety of different beliefs, or they maybe believe that they have to, that they need to take the Sabbath off. That could be uh, Sunday Sabbath, or for Seventh-day Adventists, it could be the Saturday Sabbath, uh, or for Jews, it could be Saturday as well. So again, those things all come up, and if you know, employers don't believe religion is that important, then again, it's hard to accommodate its beliefs. We've had some good decisions in that respect, though, both for employees and both for religious employers who uh, want to accommodate, uh, want their beliefs to be accommodated as well. Well, one of them, uh, the first case you cite, in fact, is Lori Smith and a Colorado anti-discrimination law. What happened, what happened there? That, that case had gone on for some time, and it really was sort of in the same vein of Jack Phillips' case. It's the same law that, that uh, implicated Jack Phillips. It's just that Lori Smith, rather than waiting to be uh, basically caught by the state, she filed a preemptive sort of lawsuit. Uh, she didn't violate the law. She said, if I do what I if I act in accordance with my beliefs, uh, I will violate the law. So I'm bringing this preemptive lawsuit in order to have this law um, declared unconstitutional as re, uh, as applied to her. And so this um this went all the way up to the Supreme Court and, you know, a long awaited ruling last year, uh, the, the court said that she could not be compelled by Colorado anti-discrimination law to design websites for same sex marriages. She's a Christian. Uh, she didn't believe that she could in good conscience do this in accordance with her faith. Uh, she was happy to work with people uh, who are, are gay uh, for other reasons, to design other kinds of websites. So it wasn't a question of denying service to someone. It was a question of her being compelled, whether or not she could be compelled to put out a message on a website that she designed, you know, supporting same-sex weddings, and she could not do that. So it was really a free speech-oriented or rooted decision, but it has a lot of implications for religious liberty as well. The other less settled area, and I think the, the one that we're going to see in the upcoming year um, litigated more uh, as some of these cases work their way through the courts, is you know the right of a religious nonprofit group to employ only those who affirm their statement of faith and standards of conduct. So you know, there's been mixed rulings in this respect. Uh, last year in March, there was a New York uh, appeals court panel that agreed that a pro-life pregnancy center had the right to hire only like-minded employees. And as you can imagine, that would be employees that, are, that didn't approve of abortion, mm -hmm. but supported, uh, were pro-life. Uh, that's the mission of that company. It wouldn't make sense to hire somebody who wasn't like-minded in that respect. But then out on the West Coast, a court in late November upheld a Washington state anti-discrimination laws application to World Vision. So saying that World Vision had to hire a person who could not subscribe to their standards of conduct. This, this was a person who was in a same-sex marriage. Uh, they were, um, they were, were going to be hired for a uh, position as a, uh, to work with donors. Uh, so, you know, uh, out front representative of World Vision, a Christian relief agency, uh, and could not follow uh, their beliefs. And so, uh, so far, um, the court has upheld that that's on appeal as well. So, you know, this is a dispute, this, this dispute over whether or not um, nonprofits have to hire people who can't subscribe to their stand, basic basis of faith or their standards of conduct. This is one that's come up in other instances as well. Uh, 
Seattle Pacific University out in Washington State, uh, Chicago's Moody Bible Institute, or uh, also uh, has a, a, a case ongoing about that. And the Supreme Court hasn't yet, you know, agreed to take a case that would actually make a ruling in this particular area. It's declined appeals of some unfavorable rulings uh, in the past, one against Colorado's Faith Christian Academy, uh, over issues about who the, who the school had to hire, you know, uh, whether or not they could hire and fire employees uh, without being second-guessed by the courts. And so this is an area of religious autonomy that um, is going to continue to be a hot spot uh, in the next year. And a real important one, because if, if, uh, if you know, if, if ministries cannot uh, hire people who support their mission, but have to hire anybody, uh, then that's that really compromises the whole basis of the ministry. Well, my guest today on His People is Steve West. He is a reporter for World Magazine, and he's also an attorney. He worked for 34 years as a federal prosecutor in Raleigh, North Carolina. We're talking about his world peace year in review, taking a look back at 2023, some of the significant cases, First Amendment cases, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, religious liberty cases, and uh, it's uh, subtitled Making Room for the Religious. Uh, another broad area, major area that you take a look at, Steve, is faith on campus, and you write that a federal appeals court ruling was a win uh, this past year for religious liberty. Uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes was involved with that. Tell us, tell us what happened. This is a tremendous case, and I say tremendous because this is the one that really encourages me. Here were some high school students uh, who were basically subjected to a lot of uh, persecution, both by students and teachers, even teachers in their high school, San Jose High School, that um, against their their particular beliefs. Uh, all they wanted to do was have this Fellowship of Christian Athletes huddle, they call it, a small group, basically, that meets together for prayer and support of one another. Uh, one of the uh, teachers there uh, found out from another student about the beliefs of this of, of FCA, which affirms, you know, what you would think of as is you know biblical beliefs, uh, particularly in relationship to sexuality and marriage. And while anyone was welcome to come to a fellowship of Christian athletes huddle, any student could come. Any any student was welcome. In fact, uh, they required their leaders to be able to sign the ministry's statement of faith, student leaders, to sign the statement of faith and agree to abide by their standards of conduct. And this is what the teacher had a problem with and basically uh, organized a crusade against this uh, uh, group to get them, first of all, uh, de-recognized, which means they can't use any of the normal means of communication or uh, meeting facilities allowed to other recognized student groups. And then really wanted to get them booted off of campus completely. And a federal appeals court in California uh, entered a decision that was extremely favorable to this group that found that it was unconstitutional what had happened to the group uh, and upheld their right to be able to insist on having leaders that subscribed to their Christian beliefs. In fact, the, the campus itself, it was pointed out, um, the campus had a uh, other groups that had requirements for their leadership that um, that sort of undercut their rationale for wanting to you know, be able to control who was the leader of this uh, FCA group. So, so anyway, that was a very good ruling uh, in terms of, you know, legally, it doesn't stop 
persecution necessarily it doesn't stop uh, the things that happened, but it does give them the legal right to exist on campus. And it's a model of, of, of some students who basically stood up and took the heat for this. Now they've, they've long since graduated those students, but because it takes so long to wind through the system, but still it's a very encouraging um, uh, uh, thing that happened there. And of course, this has been a, a major story uh, in recent, uh, well, in, at least in the past uh, two or three months, uh, following the Hamas massacre on October 7th in Israel. Uh, Jewish students and organizations have found themselves kind of on the receiving end of uh, anti-Semitic sentiment, and they've actually uh, brought some lawsuits. Uh, there's even been a congressional investigation for those that have been following this. Uh, t tell us a little bit about that. Oh, sure. You know, this has been, uh, I think this has really brought to bear some of what's operative on, on college campuses, and that is a, a lot of uh, critical race theory thought where people are divided into, you know, either oppressors or, or the oppressed. And in the minds of um, some people on campus and, and, and some students, you know, the, uh, the, the Jewish people are the oppressors and the they call the Palestinians or the oppressed. And so uh, they, you know, they're protesting this. So, I mean, the danger here, I think, is uh, anti-Semitism is a, is, a, is a real concern, a real problem, and there are ways that universities can, can get at that. Uh, uh, you can't stop hatred. You can't stop um, the expression of that oftentimes in terms of uh, vocally expressing that. But you can stop uh, threats against Jewish students. Um, and there are many kinds of uh, things that you can do something about. And particularly if you're a private university, you can do that. But at the same time, I think the danger here and the complicating thing is that um, if, if universities try to um, basically take the approach of uh, squelching free speech, then that's a real danger as well. It cuts both ways. You know, the answer to speech you don't like, of course, someone said is that uh, it's just more speech, you know, uh, talk about why that's wrong, you know, what they're saying, some of the things that are being said by the uh, groups about um, about the Jews. Talk about why that's wrong. Uh, have more speech rather than less speech. Stop uh, people from committing criminal acts. Stop people from uh, making direct threats against Jewish students. Uh, stop people from, uh, you know, trespassing on property, defacing property, tearing down posters and other things that are on campus that are examples of free speech. So those types of things. You know, I go back to the, you know, everybody, uh, I guess most people probably heard some of the, uh, or read about some of the congressional testimony by the university presidents from Harvard, and, uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. And uh, many were disappointed with what they said. And, and uh, there are many reasons to attack what they said, because it was, um, I'll put it this way, it was very legal in nature. Uh, they were not incorrect legally that they uh, must, from the standpoint of free speech, to allow some of these things to occur. But they were some of these things to be said, but they were hypocritical because they have uh, reined in other kinds of speech that they don't like. So this happened to be speech that they didn't have too much problem with, apparently. So that was a concern about their particular testimony. But um, but I think there's a real a real danger here that uh, of shutting down free speech. Uh, they need to be even-handed about the way the way they apply their policies, and they need to allow a lot for a lot of freedom of expression. 
Well, Steve, another of these areas, uh, and uh, our, our time is going quickly, I realize, but it's parental pushback. Uh, court cases were heard, you write, that could revitalize a longstanding constitutional guarantee of parental rights. Uh, the cases uh, dealt with, well, for, for one thing, transgender ideology. Uh, tell us what's going on there. That's been, a, I know, a, a major issue over the last few years. It- it really has been, and I think this is this is an exciting area to watch. You know, we we're used to talking about the First Amendment, and we know that when the government takes action that impacts somebody's um, religious liberty, if they're going to constrain religious liberty in some way by policy or by law, uh, then they have to show um, they have to show that they have a compelling reason to do show, and they've used the least restrictive means, and that law is looked at. It, it, we say they apply strict scrutiny to it. The courts apply strict scrutiny, which, which means it's the highest level of review. So in order to restrain religious liberty, you have to have a very, very good reason. And it has to be about the only way you can do it uh, is to do that. And it has so a really important reason. So what people don't understand a lot of times is that parental rights, the right to, to, to uh, control the education and the upbringing uh, of your children is a constitutional right of as well as rooted in the 14th Amendment, which we think of as a due process, but there's also something called substantive due process that's in that amendment. And that goes back a long ways, this parental right. But uh, the Supreme Court has never really articulated how challenges based on parental rights should be reviewed by the courts. So we don't know if strict scrutiny is replied or not. You know, and, and there's argument is that it should be. It should be the same standard that's applied to the First Amendment uh, religious liberty uh, cases. So here you have a lot of things going on. You have um, parental rights comes up when a, a school is uh, transitioning a child socially to another gender that doesn't match their sex uh, without telling parents about it, keeping it a secret deliberately and by policy doing that. So I I wrote last year about a couple of cases where where that was going on uh, and the parents were not even notified. And it, it also comes up with parents who are pushing back against, um, you know, sexually explicit uh, material that's in school libraries or uh, in the classroom and whether or not they have the right to opt their children out of those types of materials that celebrate same-sex romantic relationships or gender based on feelings instead of biology. Uh, there's also, uh, you know, claims by parents that, uh, uh, that uh, you know, they, these, uh, there's books that promote critical race theory concepts or gender ideology or containing sexually explicit material, like I said. So, so anyway, that's, a, that's an area that we're going to continue to watch. Parents are pushing back. There's a lot of great, um, parents have been act, uh, energized, I think. And uh, I think it came out of, uh, COVID, when a lot of parents, uh, you know, the kids were on uh, going to class uh, on the internet, and parents got a peek into what actually was going on inside of the classroom, and uh, were surprised at what they heard, uh, and so, and, and surprised at the kind of books that are found in libraries and uh, school classrooms, and the kind of ideologies that are promoted. So now a lot of parents are energized and pushing back. And I think one of these cases will eventually make it one day to the Supreme Court and we'll have a better answer legally about the uh, how these cases should be reviewed. Well, Steve, uh, you uh, we looked earlier at uh, employees 
uh, religious beliefs, faith in the workplace, maybe from the perspective of the of the employer, and then uh, you also look at from the perspective, uh, I believe, from the perspective of the employee. For example, the Supreme Court and the Christian postal worker, a case that was decided this year. People may not be aware of that, but in a nutshell, what happened there, and, and what's the significance? Well, you know, in most um, companies, and that is companies that are uh, have, I think it's 20 employees or more, uh, the, the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act applies. And that basically says, part of Title VII says, that an employer must accommodate the religious beliefs of employers. And typically, the employer's burden, what he has to show, an employer has to show in order to not accommodate an employee has been relatively light uh, in the past. But last year, uh, a fellow named Gerald Groff, who was a postal worker in Pennsylvania, his case, case came before the Supreme Court, and all Groff wanted to do was to take Sunday off for Sabbath observance. He was willing to work Saturday. He was willing to work any time. But it was just Sunday that he wanted off, and he worked for a small post office. Uh, it caused some, some burden to his fellow workers, um, but the case went up. They, they denied his accommodation. The case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that um, sent it back to the trial court but basically sent it back saying that basically now an employee's religious objections uh, have to be accommodation, accommodated unless accommodating them will substantially increase the cost of doing business for the employer. That's a much higher burden for the employer. So I think that's going to make a lot of difference in some of these cases, you know, whether it's vaccine, uh, observe, you know, vaccines or Sabbath or dress matters for the workplace or opting out of training that's uh, uh, challenging to the person's religious beliefs, uh, it's going to make a difference to that. And so we'll see what happens in the future and how that case is applied, but it's a really important case. Well, Steve, we're obviously not able to, to talk about every aspect of your piece, Year in Review, Making Room for the Religious. People can read it at wng.org, but I, I did want to ask you, uh, you, you the, toward the end of your piece, you look forward to to this year, to our 2024, some, uh, you, you're looking for some major Supreme Court cases coming up. Can, can you touch on, uh, kind of give us a quick overview of the ones you feel are really significant? Yes, I think, you know, one of the, the issues that it didn't come up, it's not really a religious liberty issue, although it has implications for that, is um, this this case involving the, the claim that the government, the Biden administration, colluded with social media outlets um, to, to basically screen out objectionable speech, speech that the Biden administration didn't approve of, like, like uh, speech about vaccines, for example, uh, that would be one. Um, so that that's going to be one that we're going to have to continue to watch. I think that's really to see that play out will be really, really important. Well, Steve, you are a reporter for World Magazine now. You were an attorney for 34 years, a federal prosecutor in North Carolina. And I'm just wondering, what is your sense uh, regarding the legal climate, maybe your your prayer for for the country, uh, for the the climate, for religious liberty as we head into 2024. What what is your hope? What is your prayer? Christians are a minority in this country, which is largely secular, uh, and without a revival, uh, it's going to remain that way. And so we're going to be a minority. We're not going to be. Uh, we're not in the sense of not being able to impose our impose our beliefs on anybody if we even wanted to. But my hope is and my prayer is that well first my prayer is for revival because that can change many many things you have a revival of people it'll it'll lead to a reformation of the culture the society but my hope is that legally there can be the courts will recognize uh, a space 
for religious belief, uh, a space where it can be accommodated and people can live out their convictions uh, without fear uh, or worry. And uh, they can do that in different environments, whether it's uh, for a company they work for or in the school system, as parents, uh, however it is that people can live out those beliefs without fear. And, you know, that means that other people will be living out their beliefs as well, beliefs that we maybe we don't agree with. Um, but, but nevertheless, that would be, that would be a good result legally. And then the better result, of course, is the heart change that comes with a revival. Those are my prayers. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Steve West, attorney and writer for World. You can read his piece, Year in Review, Making Room for the Religious, by going to wng.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Jana Harmon on her captivating research on why many atheists have found God. It is like the light switch has come on, and now they can make sense of their lives. Now they're, you know, they have a life that is truly mm-hmm. life, and they want everyone else to know. And they're very active. Not only they're very serious about their following their discipleship towards Jesus, but they're also very serious and enthusiastic evangelists for Christ as well. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.